Good morning, I'm Mark Blair, and today we'll be reading from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25, and then we'll be turning to the New Testament, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Those can be found on pages 624 and 984 in the Pew Bibles. Again, that's Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, and then Colossians 3, 12 through 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. They shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, and so you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of the Lord dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Hey, let me pray for us one more time. Father, we've uh, sung out loud about your pardon. We've sung how much we need you. We've sung about how stable and reliable and trustworthy you are, that we can put our whole lives on you and you hold us. All those are beautiful and all those we need help to remember, to believe, to live into. In light of the weeks that we've had and the pressures that we feel, would you stir faith in us? For the failure, would you give us a strong sense of your pardon? 
for the places where we feel like we're on our own and it's just up to us. We've been striving. Can we just cry out that we need you? And for the places where we feel like we're alone and there's not a lot of hope, would you come and be our solid rock? I pray for my sisters and my brothers, wherever they find themselves, that you would be near in a particular sort of way as we talk about vocation and calling, whether it's in the home or it's in an office or it's online or it's in a school or it's in relationships or it's in a nursing home. God, would you give grace to help us see what you've called us to in light of the good news of the gospel. Uh, so, So help bring hope. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Chris, and uh, this is week four of a series on vocation. As I kind of thought through where to start, I remember this quote that often gets quoted in some leadership settings. It's a a French writer, maybe an aviator, legend has it. He essentially says, if you want to have people build amazing boats, amazing seafaring boats, don't just tell them to gather wood, don't just give them plans, don't just give them work to do. Give them a vision for the sea, for the vastness of the ocean. If you want to build amazing boats, don't just start with the nuts and bolts of the boat. Give them a vision for what boats are for. In a lot of ways, what our series has been aimed at doing is that, giving you a vision for why God made you, why he made work, why he made the whole world, and to put a story that is real from the scriptures in front of you to orient your longings and desires and needs and wants because there's a ton of rival stories that tell you about what money is for and what your job is for and what you're for and what ultimately will bring you happiness and joy and then on top of that the scripture brings a narrative of a God who created everything who everything has design and purpose it was good and it was meant to flourish and we were meant to actually be with him co-laboring in kind of a priest-like role where the language is a priestly language of work and keep the land. And instead of following after that grand story, the truest story in the universe, we chose a rival story, which what the theologians call the fall, where we chose to believe that the constraints of following after God and his kingdom were too much. We should actually be independent and autonomous and so we chose to hear the lie of a serpent that we should take matters into our own hands and essentially become our own gods. That work actually should serve us and we shouldn't be bound by it at all. And in that fall, everything begins to unravel. It was a promise of flourishing and goodness and that everything was going to be amazing and you would finally be happy was the lie. And then we look at the world around us and we see far, far from that, far from everyone being happy and flourishing, what we see is competition and marginalization and we see people being commodified and we see war and we see scarcity and we see everything is kind of broken so we just kind of wrestle with those things here's this promise of a great story but our reality is one that's quite different and so we've been asking what is it that God says about that and it is this promise of redemption we looked last week that Jesus came into our world God himself took on human form to come and actually then relive into this world what was designed to actually be the way it was, a flourishing, an obedience, a, a joyful following after the Father. And he lived the life that we should have lived and then died a death that we should have died in such a way that made it possible for us to, to have pardon, to actually be changed and transformed, to be reconciled back to God, and then to begin to unravel all that was broken. And if you could kind of chop the Bible up into a couple of different sections, there's, and that last one is one of flourishing and restoration. So you have creation and fall and redemption and restoration. Creation is Genesis 1 and 2. 
the fall of Genesis 3. Those are the first three chapters of the Bible. And then really from Genesis 4 until you hit the Gospels, what you get is both this promise of redemption, a playing out of the story of why we need redemption, and then this idea that there would be a day when God would come and make all things new. There, there was a promise that God would come and fix everything. And then Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels, and that redemption begins to take on human form and take on flesh. We can actually begin to see it. And he looks backwards and says, this is the fulfillment of what God promised. This is the fulfillment of what happens. So every time he heals, every time he forgives, every time he casts out a demon, every time he teaches about the kingdom, he in a sense is redeeming what was broken. And it would ultimately be in his death that he would make all things new. And then what you have from the Gospels to the end of Revelation is this understanding or playing out or description of what restoration would look like. So you can put it in these four big chunks. And from the time Jesus was here until the end of the book, what you have is a vision of restoration that calls back to some of these promises in the Old Testament saying, this is how it was going to happen. This is how you should live into this. This restoration was promised in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled by Christ. And then it's described to the followers of Jesus throughout the New Testament letters. This is what it looks like to live in light of that redemption. And then you see passages like Revelation 20 and 21 as the whole thing kind of closes down. You see a call back to the garden, back into paradise a new heaven and a new earth, God, God redoing the story and fulfilling his promise to actually restore all things. That's the story of the Bible, and it's a story that's big enough to actually hold you. It's a story that's big enough to hold your fears and your pressures. It's big enough to hold your failures and your longings. It's big enough to actually give you something to hold on to. And if you don't choose that story, there's countless other rival stories you could engage with, but all of them will promise something about your ability to fix and save and heal yourself. Or if it's kind of more honest, it will say, well, you can't do that, but you can look to other people or other things, more stuff, more experiences, more reputation, more praise, more, more respect. Those things would actually then satisfy. And what happens is you take what only God could actually heal and hold and we refuse to let him do that and so we look to creatures first ourselves and then to other created things to be what only the creator could do for us and it leaves us fragmented and frustrated and, and kind of confused and we're pretty savvy people we actually borrow from lots of stories so we long for the dignity of humankind and yet we tell a story of how someone's dignity is only matched in their value or in their their productivity or what they can do for us. Their like, economic value is what gives them some sort of worth. And it doesn't quite feel right, but we live into that while we hold on to this promise of the dignity of the way people are made. And so what we have in sense is like a longing for the kingdom of God, but the one theologian has said we refuse to actually trust the king. We want the fruits of the kingdom. We want the restoration of the kingdom. We want what God actually promised, but we refuse to actually follow him. Enter into the human condition. So what we've been trying to do the last couple of weeks is actually then retell this story and put it back in front of us so that we have a way to locate our day-to-day, -day, our, our pressures, our longings, our dreams, our energies, our gifts, our talents, our education, the way we spend our 40 or 50 or God hopes not 60 hours of work in those spaces, like where you're living that out. What purpose could it have? What would actually be big enough to rescue and satisfy, how would you actually live into God's good design? That's what we've been trying to do. 
And these preview passages that we see throughout the Old Testament are where we want to start this morning in Isaiah 65. There's a number of them, and actually I'll throw a bunch of them in the newsletter this week just so you can like be encouraged. But you see these passages that give a vision of the restoration of what God would do. You would always read them and wonder how it was going to happen. Would it be a political king or a military king? How, how would God fulfill these things? And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it's kind of a surprise that he comes as a peasant in a carpenter shop, taking on the work of a common man for 30 years of obscurity. And in that space that we see is God absorbing our entire lives so that he could absorb all of our sin and brokenness. So the question of how it was going to happen always hung in the air, but you just see these vivid, vivid depictions of what God promised. And they involve things like the end of weeping, the end of pain, the end of war. So there's passages that say things like, like spears and swords will be beat into farm implements. It's a vision of peace and prosperity, but, but also one of work. It's not that work will go away, but actually work is now redeemed. And you'll see it throughout the Psalms and the prophets. You see this foretaste of, of a peace where there's prosperity and people are no longer at odds with each other, which is what happened in the garden. It's a redoing of what happened in the garden. And so Isaiah 65 is a, a great example of that. You also see it in Revelation. It's a real similar theme, actually, of the end of weeping and prosperity and peace. All throughout the scriptures are these foretaste passages that say this is what God was going to do. And so I wanted to start with kind of a vision for the restoration. And then we'll look at the New Testament to say, how does it actually look in application and practice? Because again, after Jesus comes, what he does is he teaches his followers to follow after him. And he says, would you like do what I'm doing? Would you love what I'm loving? Would you, would you actually trust what I'm teaching? Would you live in light of this kingdom? And so even as we jump back into Matthew next week, what we're seeing is instruction from Jesus of how we live our lives. And so the New Testament letters like to the church in Colossae are examples and illustrations and commands and descriptions and, and exhortations to actually live in light of the kingdom. So, so you have a vision in Isaiah, and then you have application in Colossians. That's why I wanted to choose both passages, because I wanted you to have both of them. I didn't want you to have just the doing without the reason why. And I didn't want the reason why just to kind of hang out there without some sense of like application to know what to do tomorrow. So I wanted to squish these two passages together, which in fact I don't think are actually very far apart. What Colossians tells us is our activity or our action that would actually match the heart of God when it comes to the flourishing that God actually came to bring about. And so, so in that space, what we see is even Jesus commissioning his people to be a part of his mission. And in a passage like Luke 4, Jesus will stand in the synagogue and he'll, he'll quote Isaiah 61. And he'll say, hey, this is happening right now. And Isaiah 61 says, hey, I came to actually set captives free and to give sight to the blind and to heal what was broken and to restore all things. And then he invites his disciples then to be a part of that work with him. And what that means is that there's a vision for your life that's bigger than just your paycheck. We can now think in terms of like contribution, not just compensation. To think about what we do around us that actually matches the heart of God in the world around us. And because we're made in the image of God, really what we're doing is partnering with him and his work. There's an author, Amy Sherman, who has several great books, but her book, Kingdom Calling, she gives six like summaries of the work of God 
And then she says, these are the kinds of work that we do. She talks about redemptive work and creative work and providential work and justice work and compassionate work and revelatory, like enlightening of the truth kind of work. And she says, because that's what God does in his work, then when we live out his image in the world around us, we actually partner with God for the sake of redemption. So writers and poets and authors and artists who tell a story of redemption Surely counselors and pastors and those who speak peace to people partner there. The creative work is done with with potters and weavers and seamstresses and those who sing songs and those who work with their hands and carpenters and builders and those who actually design things and architects. There's something about even urban planning that is part of this creative organizing work. There's providential work that God does to sustain all of creation. And she just has this amazing list of like bureaucrats and public utility workers and public policymakers and shoekeepers and career counselors and shipbuilders and farmers and restauranteurs and those who work in the food and hospitality industry and firemen and repairmen and printers and painters and uh, transport workers and IT specialists and entrepreneurs and bankers and brokers and meteorologists and research technicians and civil servants and business school professionals and mechanics and engineers and building inspectors and machinists and statisticians and plumbers and welders and janitors. All of those who actually keep the world running, when you do that work, you are partnering with God in his providential work and justice work when those who work with, with uh, protecting the marginalized from, from police to lawyers to those who actually help manage our cities and make policies for good, compassionate work like doctors and nurses and those who come alongside of people at the soul level and try to heal, and then those who teach pastors and scientists and educators and journalists, scholars and writers. I went through all of that because I hope like I named at least some of your field in there. And what I want to do in that moment is just kind of make the point that Amy Sherman makes, that when you do your work, you're partnering with God in the work that he does, his redemptive work and creative work and providential work and justice work and compassionate work and revelatory work and this is good news because it means it's not just our paychecks that are the essence of our work we've been using this word vocation which comes from the latin word for for calling it's where god's placed you it's the relationships we talk about time and talent and treasure but but it's more than that it has something to do with even like where you are and why you're there and what god has put in front of you to actually see those things as part of his grand design to bring about redemption and restoration in the world. That means if you're unemployed, that means if you stay home as a caregiver, either for the young or the old, it means if you're overemployed and you're really stressed out, it means if you're in your sweet spot and have finally landed the job, it means if you're in school, it means, it means if you're frustrated or you feel like your dreams are coming true, wherever you find yourself in that space, you're able to actually do the work that God does regardless of your paycheck. It's just important to say the restoration work that God does is about actually partnering with him in the world around us. So, so that's my long introduction. Here's what I want to do. I want to actually be really practical. I want to give you six L's to kind of hold on to. And here's the first one. You partner with God in the restoration of the world when you long for what he promises to come into the world now. When you long for it, when you dream about it, when you see it and say, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's at the desire level when you say what God has given us a foretaste of and a preview of, I want to see that happen now. When I long for what God has promised, now I'm partnering with him in the restoration of the world. So go with me to Isaiah 65. 
It's on page 624 in your pew Bible. Just listen to what this foreshadowing is. And, and I want to say for you to live your life, to pray your prayers, to have your burdens, to dream your dreams, along with a longing to see this take place. Again, there's a ton of these kinds of passages throughout the scripture, but listen to what he says in Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth. Just to long for God to renew and to make things right again. The former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. It's a world without regret or shame. Which is important to have Genesis 3 in our minds where the rival story of autonomy and success and joy and happiness outside of God's ways immediately brought about shame. I think actually Isaiah must have had Genesis 3 opened up next to him as he walks through this passage. So he says there's the former things, the things that we live, they're not going to be remembered or come to mind. But instead, verse 18, there will be gladness and rejoicing forever. There'll be this kind of joy of renewal in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. That God actually wants things to actually be flourishing in such a way that there is rejoicing and joy and her people to be gladness itself. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Not that I have joy, but I will actually have joy in them. I this broken, severed relationship from Genesis 3 that sent us off into hiding because of fear. What we see now is God promised to actually restore the relationship and God would rejoice in his people and be glad in his people. No more shall we be sounding in the cross dress. No more infant who lives just a few days, an old man days. The young man shall die a hundred years old. A sinner. God brings about justice. A hundred years shall actually be accursed. And then listen to this. It's not just joyful, blissful things that are disembodied. Verse 21, he says, and they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. There will be work in the new heavens and new earth. A redeemed kind of work. A kind of work, he says, that actually brings about flourishing and one that's actually free from injustice. Verse 22. They shall not build and have another inhabit it. They shall not plant and have another eat it. They won't get ripped off or be taken advantage of or have somebody take their stuff. And think about the way Jesus says to live for a treasure that actually can't spoil or fade or be stolen. To live for a kind of desire of a kingdom or a restoration or a flourishing that actually won't fade or nobody else will inhabit it. Nobody else will, will take it or eat it, whether it's a moth or a person. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There's a flourishing and an enjoyment in doing the work that God created us to do. Just settle into that for a moment. To long for the restoration and renewal of all things is actually to long for the ability to do good work that brings about fruitfulness and flourishing, that's freed from all the pain and trappings and effects of the sinful world around us, but actually brings about a kind of joy as you do good work because that work is partnering with God's work. It's not work that actually gives you esteem. It's work, remember, that, that actually He is directing, that He is designing, that He has created. And then think about Genesis 3 with the curse, how, how our work and our homes are going to be frustrated. He says, And they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Their work and their childbearing, parts of the curse from Genesis 3, will actually be restored. For they shall be the offspring of the blessing of the Lord, and their descendants with them. 
Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I, I will hear. Remember in the garden, they, they go off and hide and God comes after them and calls to them, where, where are you? And this vision here of restored, renewed relationship, right? part of the restoration is not just getting all the stuff and streets of gold and a big mansion and you have like perfect bodies with big muscles and full heads of hair or whatever it is that you were promised heaven was going to be like. He doesn't mention follicles at all in this. What he mentions, though, is relationships restored, removing of the curse, you able to do good work in ways that actually bring about productivity and joy for yourself in a beautiful relationship with God. We partner with God in the renewal of all things when we long to see this happen, when we ask, how do I participate in this? If Christ has come and given the first fruits of these things, then how do I orient my heart, my life, my affections, my desires, my prayers, my burdens around actually seeing this begin to take place? And he says in verse 25, that the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like an ox. It's an image of peace. And then he says, and the dust shall be the serpent's food, which if you were here two weeks ago, we see in Genesis 3, 14, this curse to God's ancient enemy. Last week we saw in Hebrews 2 that Jesus came to actually take on our flesh and blood to defeat the power of Satan, it says. So there will be peace and there still will be justice. There will be justice in the world. God will keep His promise to actually restore and to make things right. To rule in righteousness is so many of these foretaste passages in the Old Testament. And they shall not hurt or destroy uh, in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Right? This power of Satan will be broken as we then begin to follow after him. Okay, I think the first L for us to kind of settle into, and it's maybe the biggest, most grandest one that the rest of them kind of hang on, is for you to wake up in the morning longing to be a part of what God's doing, to see the flourishing and renewal of the world that Jesus put the down payment on. So theologians talk about like Jesus came and, and it was the first fruits of it. He inaugurated the kingdom and he will fully consummate it when he comes again. But we live in this in-between time where we are to be about working out the implications of the kingdom. So Jesus' is teaching like in the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at probably a year ago in Matthew is meant to direct us and guide us into what are the ethics? What does it look like in practice? What, what is the nitty-gritty of your lives as you try to actually live out these things? Which brings me to that second L, to, to live in light of the kingdom. So to long for the fulfillment of the kingdom and then to live in light of the kingdom. So flip with me back over to Colossians chapter 3. It's on page 984 if you're in that pew Bible. What's amazing is we could have chosen lots of places throughout the New Testament because you see a very similar pattern over and over and over again. That Christ has come, He rules and reigns, He's the one who rules over all of creation. We are sinful, He died in our place to make it a way for us to be in relationship with Him. And then it looks like the second half of the books from Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Galatians, it begins to actually be practical to say, okay, if that's true, if He's king and He's reconciled you to Himself, now how do you live? So like in verse 1 of chapter 3, if you just look at it real quick, it says, Now if then you've been raised with Christ, if you've been reconciled to Him, if you actually have been restored, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, where He is ruling and reigning 
as the king. If you've trusted him for your redemption, now then live in light of what he's doing when it comes to his restoration. And what you see is a trusting in Jesus, a pattern of turning away from other things that we've trusted in, and then learning how to walk by the Spirit or or live in light of the kingdom values. So you'll see like fruits of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit in Galatians is the way it talks. You'll see this pattern again in Romans and in Philippians and you'll see it in in Ephesians. You see it everywhere repeated over and over again because it's the same kind of theme. Live in light of these kingdom values now here on earth. Again, remember Jesus comes into our world and he says, this is being fulfilled right now. This is happening right now. The kingdom of God is here among you. And then he teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount and places like in these epistles how to actually live that thing out. So let's just walk through this text and make some points here. So I want to say the second L is to live out the kingdom values. Look with me in verse 12 of Colossians 3. It says, put on then as God's ones, holy and beloved. Just before we go any further, just stop for a second. There's a constant reminder in the New Testament of our identity. He just like a few verses ahead talked about being raised with Christ and with Christ and being in Christ. He reminded them of their identity as a follower of Jesus. And then maybe just 10 verses later, hey, before we go any further, remember as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, so that we don't live for an identity in our obedience, but we live from a solid, rested, secure identity in what has already done for us. Christian ethic is not do all these good things and then God will be pleased with you and then you can come into his kingdom. It's God already did everything you needed him to do. And as you trust him, you're fully redeemed and then restored. So out of a restored identity, chosen, holy, and beloved, you're like, hey, dude, I don't know if you follow me around much. I wouldn't use these words, holy and beloved. Those are not the way I would describe myself. And yet, because of what Christ has done, for those who trust in Jesus, it's the truest thing about you to be forgiven and set free. And now then we can join God in his flourishing and restoration and renewal in the world, again, not to get something, but from a solid, rested place. So, so he says identity first, and then he says, live out these kingdom values. Did you catch these? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, then you should actually forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Let's just stop there for a second. If you were to take the Sermon on the Mount, and kind of lay it out in some topics, you would see a ton of it named in this little section. But even the way it begins with the Beatitudes, do you remember? It says things like, hey, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are, who are sad, who mourn, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who do mercy. Blessed are those who actually are peacemakers. It's what Jesus said it looked like to live in the kingdom. And so when the New Testament Christians are wrestling with how do we follow after God in his kingdom? He, he just says the same things over again. And before you see this list as like soft or something that doesn't have a backbone to it, right? Like, like kindness and humility and meekness. These are for those who can't win. These are for those who are at the bottom. Would you remember that actually what he's doing is contrasting to the fruits of the flesh, the anger and wrath and malice and slander. That's all you can do when you're building your own identity. When it's up to you to actually establish your own value and worth, there has to be a ruthlessness to how you relate to other people who are competition and in the way and inconveniences. But if you'll actually look to Jesus as the one who's restoring and renewing all things, then because you're not scrapping for an identity, you can actually be generous. 
Because you're not demanding to actually be proven a certain way or seem a certain way or get a certain thing, but you're actually trusting God for your righteousness, both at the soul level and the physical level, then you can be kind and humble and patient. So think about your boardroom. Think about your your online meeting. Think about your your home. Think about the, the nursing home. Think about the way you're spending your time as a retiree. And ask, where am I being marked by the kingdom ethics of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness? patience remember the garden after the lie it was blame and fear and shame and hiding this is something wholly different and very very beautiful you want people to be in relationship with you like this and what God says is, oh that's the way I am in relationship with you I've been compassionate towards you I've actually shown you kindness God actually came and humbled himself, Philippians 2 says, and took on the form of a servant living 30 years in obscurity in a carpenter's shop so that he could take on our life and relate to us. There's a meekness and a patience about the sovereign God of the universe and how he relates to us. So, So the second L is to live out the kingdom values now in this world. And he goes on to say, and let the word of Christ in verse 16 dwell in you richly. It's how you'll know. It's how you'll understand what it is. You don't intuitively just all of a sudden stop the habits of a slave who's lived in bondage to sin and death. You don't just automatically shake all of those impulses. You actually then have to move towards learning and and relearning. But the word of Christ kind of shaping and helping out again, being incredibly practical of how you live in light of the providence and the provision and the flourishing and the restoration and the goodness of God actually begins to correct and change our hearts. And it happens really slow. It happens in ways Jesus says is like leaven or something that's like a mustard seed that actually grows over time. I have a friend who a couple of years ago got really into making sourdough bread. I'm not exactly sure why, but it was pretty fascinating to watch. And so apparently there's this like starter that you nourish and nurture along almost like a child he would have to like leave what we were doing and go tend to the starter and feed it stuff and I'm not I'm not sure what kind of voodoo was happening but there's something going on with like yeast and bacteria and this thing would begin to grow and then he would like chop off parts of it and kind of start new loaves and then kind of go back and start to feed this original starter of the sourdough it actually was pretty delicious and he spent a lot a lot of time and energy in it but it was something that started out small and then began to grow and there's something going on in that chemical reaction that I don't understand, but he was like keenly aware and there's something that was spreading and growing because of what was happening inside that dough. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God spreading like leaven, and we stop to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Something about justice and humility and mercy that actually helps the kingdom to actually spread and grow. So, So living out the kingdom values now as a boss as one who reports to someone as an entrepreneur as someone who stays home with children as somebody who's trying to find a job to let the ethics of the kingdom shape and mark you would be the second thing it means for us to live out the flourishing okay as we go on though this text kind of leads us to a really focused understanding that it's in love of neighbors the third l to live out these kingdom values, but there's a kind of summary about the love of neighbor. Jesus even says you can sum up the whole law with love God and love others. You see in this text over and over and over again the relational component of our faith. 
So here it is. You partner with God in the restoration and renewal of the world as you seek to love your neighbor. As you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need a paycheck for that. As you ask, how do I actually show love and kindness? The essence of it, right? Reduce all the mystery. Take all the confusion out. It comes as we love neighbor. It's, again, not compensation but contribution, which can happen all over the place. So with our ministry fair, and even as you serve in this room, as you engage with our kids' ministry, as you volunteer for things, you're, you're loving neighbor. You're not just filling a slot. You're not just helping the machine run. You're actually adding love of neighbor. You're seeing the flourishing through those things, right? So the third L is love of neighbor. Look with me in verse 13 of Colossians 3. Just hear how many times one another and other comes up. So he says that we should be patient. We should bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another... Forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your plural hearts, to which indeed you've been called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, songs and thankfulness in your heart to God. The third L that we're trying to grab What does it look like to live in light of this flourishing and restoration is the robust love of neighbor. Fourth, and I'm borrowing this phrase from Amy Sherman, the fourth L is to leverage your vocational power. Which sounds pretty awesome. Let me explain what she's meaning by that. Sorry, the sarcastic. Thanks, Ryan, for laughing at me. Uh, Look with me in chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, comprehensive, in word, or deed, in what you say or in what you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So from this verse, we stop and say there's a New Testament command that everything I'm doing should be lived in light of these kingdom realities. Let them all actually be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, the King, the one who actually came into our world and said, this is what reality was about. To go in the grain of what he's doing in the universe is to partner with him in word and deed in everything. So if we say vocation is your calling, it's not just your paycheck, it's not just your job, and it's not meant to be separated between the secular and sacred. Remember, the Christian story is an integrated story where we're supposed to live in the face of God before the face of God in a regular way that everything we do is actually done for his glory and so we stop and we say what does that actually look like it looks like me taking everything i have and asking how do i engage in god's work in the kingdom through these things and i'll actually put this in the newsletter kind of as the the featured article that's twice now if you're counting i've pushed the newsletter on you passively in those spaces what i'll do is kind of just quote her at length so we don't take too much time here but she talks about seven dimensions of vocational power If it's not just your paycheck, if it's where you're making a contribution, she talks about your vocational power rooted in knowledge, like your experience, what you know that somebody else may not know that you can actually use to help bring about flourishing. In your platform, where you have a voice, where you have influence, right? Even when it comes to things like social media, when you get tens and tens of views on your posts, in that space, you're thinking about stewarding that platform and as you do that remember you're it's a kingdom platform right everything is done not secular and sacred it's not like online's your own deal but when you're inside the building it's god's deal it's all meant to be integrated in such a way that the things like 
compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, these kingdom ethics should very much shape all the ways that you use your platform, whether they are digital or they're in a conference room or they're in your relationships. She says, thirdly, your networks, your contacts, who you went to school with, who you know, who your business partners are, the vendors that you're familiar with. Those are spaces where you actually have vocational power that you can use and leverage for the kingdom. Where you have influence, which she says is the capacity for causing effect in indirect and in intangible ways. Where you can actually make something happen because of the position that you have or who you are or what you've experienced. Which leads to the next one, which is your actual position, your level of authority, your title, your your decision-making power. That's something to actually leverage for the kingdom, right? Your seniority and your reputation actually have a kind of influence to them. The skills that you have, the things that you're actually good at, the things that you've honed, the things you've practiced, the things that you've actually been educated about to learn and become more towards an expert, those are things that you can actually use towards the kingdom. And your reputation, your, your relationships, your capacity to actually have a following and to influence people. So when she says then like your vocational power, what she's trying to do is just give you more than just your job title. More than just the one little sphere that has your paycheck on it. It's something more about like what you're good at, who you know, how you work in the world, who listens to you, who you can actually mobilize towards good, the things that you are good at. And when you do that, then again, it's not just in your jobs, but everywhere in your life that you're able to actually see flourishing. So, so think about these tables out there with um, a crisis pregnancy center and an urban basketball league and ways to work with single moms, and a way to work with at-risk teen girls, and a, and a bread ministry, and even just giving hours to pray for these ministries, to think about the ways that we're trying to see things happen in the city, and then ask, where is your vocational power? What are you good at? What do you, what do you love? Who can you actually influence? Where, where when you move a direction, people actually tend to follow. Can you think about stewarding that and leveraging that vocational power towards the good kingdom ends of reconciliation and restoration of all things. It's a bigger view than just your job. It actually sets you up to actually see the flourishing all around you. All right, that's the fourth L, to, to leverage your vocational power. Again, newsletter. It's going to be amazing. Tell you all more, all more about it. The fifth one is to leave behind or, or, or loosen your grip on the values of the world. For a Christian, the pattern is trust Jesus Turn from other things that you've been trusting and turn to where God is actually leading you in his kingdom. Colossians 3, 1 to 4, the identity in Christ. 5 to 11, the things of the flesh that we're to take off and then to put on the things of the spirit, 12 to 17. To actually leave behind the patterns and habits and perspectives and values of the world. Jesus is always working with his disciples saying, oh, hey, you think like the world. You think in terms of position and power, but it's actually much more than that. God is actually flipping things upside down, and he's saying the kingdom comes through the meek and the kind, but you can't hold on to angry, malicious power and be meek and humble at the same time. Now, you might, in a duplicitous way, if you live a fragmented life, and at work you're the tyrant, and at home you're the sweet, compliant one, but in that space you'll actually feel the weight of being disintegrated, of having your heart not integrated in that space actually you're meant as a one who's made the image of God to live a holistic life and to do that even in places that have 
like an edge to them in the office. Relationships that actually are not embodying kingdom values. For you to actually let go of what would give you power there in preference for the kingdom renewal that Christ is bringing will actually be an important step in your leadership. We talk about pushing back darkness as part of what we want to do as a church to proclaim hope and pursue transformation and push back darkness. And one of the ways you do that is by letting go or loosening your grip on the power that the world promises. And you'll be more compelled to do that to the degree that you realize it is a dead end road. And to go against the grain of the universe, to go against the way God's designed things, to actually seek to save yourself will actually always only end in bankruptcy. It can't be anything else. It has to actually go that direction because the universe is designed towards this restoration end. So one reason I'm so excited about this study with our men is just to create a space to talk about why we're so compelled by that other way of living and how it reflexively drives us and how we might look to Jesus to actually begin to heal some of those spaces. Like, I'm thankful just for a space for five weeks to just navigate that and talk about it because it's real to your life. This section to step away from the things of the flesh is a constant New Testament command to Christians. It's a thing you'll do your whole life. There's always layers where the lies you believe for a long time are so familiar and compelling that they feel like close companions. And those reflexes are just so close and tight to your grasp. So letting them go, loosening your grip on those things is the fifth way that we partner with God and join Him in the reconciliation of the world. And finally, to look to the coming kingdom for our reward. Later on in this section in chapter 3, he's going to go on to address like husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and masters. And he says in verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the Christian to be about reconciliation work is to look to not this life, but this promised next life to be the thing that you're longing to see actually renew. It's something that we're going to do our whole lives. We'll, we'll take baby steps. There's as many expressions as there are people in the room to live out these things. But my hope with these six L's was to give you some handholds as you're going like, how do I use my vocation? It'll be decades, guys, that we'll, we'll navigate this together. Let me give them to you real quick one more time. To long for the restoration of God's promised kingdom. To desire it. To live out the kingdom values now. To love God and to love your neighbor as the summary of what it looks like to actually live out your vocation. To leverage your vocational power. To leave behind the old way. And to look to the coming kingdom for your reward. In those spaces as we talk in the years to come, we'll give more nuance and more descriptions. But every time we talk about this, we have to talk about the fact that our goal and our hope is not in living out our vocations perfectly. For the Christian, the desire is to honor God in all things, but it's not to honor Him so that you can be loved. We'll always have to say we want to strive with the energy that God gives us towards healthy vocations from a rested identity not to get one of those. Because work and vocation is a terrible gospel. It will never actually rescue and satisfy. You can't work well enough. You can't live these things out most perfectly enough to finally justify yourself and make yourself right with God. Work doesn't have the capacity to save you. Which is why God came into our world, took on our work, died on a cross to set us free so we could actually then follow Him in our work. That's the good news of the gospel. 
and it's a forgetful thing for us. We drift so far throughout the week, so we take communion every week to remind ourselves of that particular story, that Christ broke his body and shed his blood. It's not my work or lack of work. It actually makes me right with God. It's what Christ has done. That is the Christian message. So if you're a follower of Jesus in a moment, I want to invite you to come and take communion. We're going to take a piece of the bread off and we'll dip it in the cup. It'll be a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ on your behalf. There's a gluten-free station over here to my right, your left, as well as some individual packets if that's more comfortable for you. But it's a, a declaration that work could never save you. That vocation isn't enough to carry the weight of your identity. Only Christ can do that, and then that sets you free. And as I'm saying that, that might sound really strange to you. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and you've not heard that there's an identity apart from your work or apart from your performance. Your, your whole life you've been striving after what it means to prove yourself and make yourself lovable and safe and respectable so people desire you or you prove somebody wrong, even if it's just yourself. If that's where you are, I man, I would invite you to stay in your seat and just pray. There's a God who loves you, who has you in the room, who has you hearing this for a reason. And there's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray, but there's no pressure for you to fake some religious exercise to come forward. Although, I would say this, if this morning as we talk about what it means to join God in his restoration, you want that. You want his redemption. You want to actually trust him to be the one who actually heals what's broken inside of you. Then there's prayers on the back of your bulletin that would help you with that as well. A prayer for belief that would help you articulate. What is it that I would say to God to ask him to actually rescue me? You can just sit in your seat and pray those things. And afterwards, I would love to talk with you about where you're at and hear some of your story and answer some of your questions. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, stay in your seat. Those who are trusting Christ, let's take communion together and then we'll sing. Let me pray for us. And then we'll worship that way. Jesus, thank you for who you are. And thanks for the work that you did. Thanks that it's the work that actually gives meaning and purpose to our work. Thanks that you didn't ask us to be perfect workers to prove ourselves. But you actually knew we couldn't. So you came into our world. You humbled yourself. You took on flesh and blood. Died in such a way to make a way for us to be redeemed. We worship you and we say thank you. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, come when you're ready.